Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. This weekend in the church here is the 16th Sunday after Pentecost, and we will have the Old Testament text from Amos chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. The epistle, well, your pastor has an option. He can go with 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 on the pastoral office, or he can skip to the end of the epistle and do chapter 6, verse 6 through 19. And then for the gospel, it is Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. So we're going to jump in here with the Old Testament reading from the prophet Amos. We were in Amos just last weekend as well with chapter 8. Those are the only times that we see the book of Amos here in year C together. And last week's text in chapter 8 was a a very strong word of God's judgment against his people for having deprived the poor, robbed the poor, caring only about their greed, breaking many of the Lord's commandments in doing so, and that he would never forget their deeds. It's not all that different this weekend as we look to the prophet Amos, uh, chapters 6, 1 through 7 again. It's another slam of God's law against his people, this time for not the greed side of things, but the prosperity, the the prosperous living, the prosperous ease and comfort and luxury with which they live. And just as we could talk about last week sounding so much like ourselves as we, well, we are greedy and covetous people, and we do not honor the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, but would rather keep our businesses open every day all the time to make as many pennies for ourselves as we can. We live at ease, and we live in luxury, and it won't be hard to make the law connections between this text and ourselves. So, as we jump in here, we are looking again Amos chapter 6, 1 through 7, it's all one paragraph, so I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole text. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Calneh and see. From there go to Hamath the great. Then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better? than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence! Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and, like David, invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. So the first note in the verse, verse 1, we've got the mention of both Zion and Samaria. That would be a reference to both of the kingdoms of the Lord, both of his nations, Zion is a, another name for Jerusalem used interchangeably in the Old Testament. Zion specifically would be a reference to a particular hill in Jerusalem, but again, interchangeable usage. So those who are at ease in Jerusalem, the southern kingdom of Judah, and those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, that's the northern kingdom, 
of Israel. Samaria is their capital. So both capitals picked, thus representing the entirety of God's people and his kingdom here. Those who are at ease in Zion feel secure on Mount Samaria. There is similarity in those phrases. To live at ease, to feel secure. To feel secure allows you to live at ease. Does it not? There's, well, we shouldn't worry anyway, but our our mind would not be worried. We would not be tempted to worry because everything's fine. And there's no trouble about. When we stop and pause and reflect, this is actually the same reason God declared that he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We often think of Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction coming because of the sin of homosexuality. Um, and there's something to that, but not entirely. If you go to Ezekiel chapter 16, as God is rebuking both the northern and the southern kingdom, primarily the south, because well, the north's already destroyed, um, but he describes them as sisters, that Israel was destroyed and Judah now has, has become even worse than her older sister. Then he says this, Behold, let me jump back, verse 48, I'll start there. As I live, declares the Lord Yahweh, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Sodom's sins, for which God has declared his judgment against them back in Genesis chapter 18-19. Pride, excess food, prosperous ease. It should sound a lot like Amos's judgment and prophecy against them as well, but honestly, it should sound like ourselves, our own people, our own land, that we have all of these things ourselves. Pride, instead of being seen as a, well, the chief of sin, it's seen as the greatest thing. I mean, if you go back to those seven deadly sins famed in in, in Roman Catholicism, which there's at least something to the concept of those things, right? Uh, The the list being evil and things we ought not to do. They believed that pride was not just one of the seven, but that pride was the chief of the seven, and truly all the other ones flowed from pride. We can see from Scripture as well that pride is a great evil amongst men, and yet again it is held up as the highest virtue in American culture. It is celebrated in many and various ways. Excess food? I don't know that I have to really point out too much what's going on there. I mean, we we consume far more calories in a day, most of us, than our bodies actually need, and then we're still throwing food away on top of that. While on the other hand, there are people in the world without food. That's a much more complex problem. I'm not saying that by limiting how much we eat it would fix that. We certainly have the trouble. And then prosperous ease. We think we're going to be okay. Like, my head hits the pillow at night, not... This is my temptation as a sinner. 
My head hits my pillow at night, not counting on God to bring me through the night, to protect me from all harm and danger, as we pray with Luther's evening prayer. But instead thinking, well, I've got a house. It's locked up tight. I live in a safe neighborhood. Nothing's going to happen. We can't even fathom something happening to us in the midst of the night. We have these sins. So the point of verse 50 in Ezekiel there was that God sends his angels down to Sodom. Much like God walks into the garden after Adam and Eve have fallen into sin and he gives them the opportunity to step forward, take responsibility for their action, to repent of their sin, and they don't. They play the blame game. Well, when he sends the angels down to Sodom, instead of repenting because of judgment being at hand, they they get, well, crass. They try to rape the angels, the messengers that God sent their way. That's verse 50's abomination for which he then destroyed them. But the judgment was already to be had. So we see that connection to now verse 1 here in Amos chapter 6, that the people in Zion feel at ease, that they feel secure on the Mount of Samaria. Not good. All of this is going to lead up to the last line in verse 6. They are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. So everything's going to be a contrast to that one little statement. I guess we should talk about that then. Uh, the ruin of Joseph being Joseph there, a reference to the whole nation. Jacob's favorite son, Joseph. They're not caring. They're not paying any attention to the fact that God has declared judgment against them. To the fact that they are soon going to perish because they won't repent and they don't repent. And so they do soon perish. So woe to them. So the notable men, verse 1 still, uh, those would be the leaders, advisors, prophets, priests, those who should have been giving Israel sound wisdom, leading Israel and Judah alike to the temple to worship the one true king, but they aren't. They're leading them astray. They're leading them to false idols as the house of Israel comes seeking guidance. Notable men of the first of the nations. Israel here being called first of the nations because she is God's chosen. Because the Lord has chosen her. Because the Lord has put his name in her midst in the temple in Jerusalem. She is holy. She is described as first. Pass over to Kelne. Hamath and Gath. Different directions here. Um, I saw some conflict about where Calneh may have been, but I'm going to go with the, the route from earlier in Scripture, which is Genesis chapter 10, verse 10, that Nimrod, the first empire builder, it would appear, in the history of the world, uh, built many great cities for himself, one of them being Calneh. So Genesis 10, verse 10, lists a few of them and it appears to be off in the land of Babylon. That would be towards the east. Um, this point perhaps still called Assyria. Shinar is what it's called early in the Old Testament as well. The conflict is many say it ends up being a city further north of Israel rather than east. 
there could be something to this. The land of Assyria stretched all the way from basically the Persian Gulf over there, um, where the Tigris and the Euphrates are, all the way to the north of Israel. It was a great empire, a vast empire. And so if it's up there, I suppose that that works just the same. And then Hamath, Hamath is going to be part of Syria, north of her capital of Damascus, so also north of the land of Israel. But then they're supposed to go down to Gath of the Philistines. That would be down to the southwest of the land of Israel, or if you're looking at Judah just off to the west, Gath is going to be one of the five chief cities of the Philistines' kingdom. So Philistia, five chief cities, five kings in each city, one king in each city to make five total. Look at these three great cities. The Lord invites them to compare. Are you better than these kingdoms? These are interesting rhetorical questions. Is their territory greater than your territory? So better than these kingdoms, I'm going to go with the answer to both of these questions being no, but we can ponder them. Are they better than Assyria? Are they better than Philistia? Are they better than Syria? In a way, no. I mean, again, Syria, Assyria stretches uh, a greater territory uh, by far compared to Israel. It's not even close. But Israel is the chosen people of God. They live in the promised land. Your territory greater than their territory. Again, how are you measuring this? The scripture doesn't give us any more. My my thought of what the Lord is doing with these rhetorical questions is to invite Israel to consider that they are no better than these other kingdoms. They are their territory no less than these other kingdoms. That they are on par with these other people. And look what's happened. Look how the world has been judged under God's hand already the judgment will also come upon you, O Israel, O people of God. You who put away, far away, the day of disaster, so they ignore that God's day of judgment is coming upon them. They pretend it doesn't exist. They live on and on like it won't happen to them. Now again, let's make these connections to ourselves. Are we better than these kingdoms? Seriously, is the United States better than the Roman Empire? Is our territory greater than theirs? Or Alexander the Great's rule? We're not. And what happened to them? They were destroyed by God's judgment. God's wrath came upon them and brought their empires to a close. Such is a warning also to us in the land in which we live. Every kingdom will fall. If it doesn't fall before Christ's return, it will fall when Christ returns. Because these kingdoms of this world, they are not... They're not breathing? (laughs) Just to put it simply, they are not people. They're not the people of God. They're not 
something that Christ died to save. They are a tool through which the Lord works in this world for his purposes now, both what we would think of as good and evil, in a way, um, as he brings judgment, he brings destruction, but he also brings things like protection against evil in your community, crime being thwarted by government authorities. At least that's one of the reasons given for governing authorities by God in Romans chapter 13. And yet we also put far away the day of disaster. We pretend it's not coming. Even as Christians, we pretend that day doesn't come. We live as though tomorrow will come. Right now, as you listen to the podcast, do you assume Jesus Christ is coming back today? Probably not. Most Christians don't. If you do, fantastic. It's a difficult way to live uh, that we are called to. We're called to live basically with one foot in each camp. Um, Live as though Christ is coming back today. That will impact how you live your day. It will impact how you serve your neighbor. It will impact the urgency with which you want to share Christ with, with others. And also, live with one foot in the other camp as though Christ will come back sometime, I don't even know, like say a month from now. That means you need to prepare for tomorrow so that you have something to give and to use to love your neighbor tomorrow also. But we live as though Christ isn't coming back at all. I mean, this is a, I don't know, maybe a Christian heresy. The idea that some have, and I've heard this before, that's sneaking into the church right now, that all that stuff about the the second coming of Jesus is just like a metaphor. That he's not really coming back. That his, his return just refers to when you die and he'll come and he'll take you to be with himself. That's not what the scriptures teach. That is not the promise of God's word, Old Testament or new. The day of the Lord is coming. And it is a day of dark disaster for those who do not trust in Christ. Who do not look to him for their salvation. Live as though he's coming back today. And make plans so that you can still love your neighbor if he doesn't come back today. But woe to us who aren't. It's not good for the Christian to live as though Christ isn't going to keep that promise. He said it. I'm coming soon. Threefold in the book of Revelation. And John's response at the end of the book is, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Simple prayer every Christian should have on their lips every day. Pray it every day. It's only four words. It'll take you two seconds a day. The world certainly ignores the day of disaster coming. They definitely don't believe Christ is coming back. They don't believe they're going to have to face a judgment from God. They think they die, they get buried, and it's over. They live this life for themselves, trying to get as much pleasure out of each day as they can, because if tomorrow doesn't come, they think they no longer exist. They don't recognize there's something far greater at play in their lives and in this creation that there is a God who has created them and who loved them enough to give his son to die for them. That's a hope we can share. So instead of recognizing that the day of disaster is coming, they bring it near with their own violence, 
Uh, so a reference here to chapters 2, 5, and 8, which all talk about how they have harmed the poor, been violent towards them. Verse 4, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches. This is a description of luxury. Their homes were shaped very much differently than our own. Um, today, you know, you have the standard American home, multiple bedrooms, multiple bathrooms. Uh, you've got furniture filling up every room of your house. You've got stuff flowing in every room of your house, overflowing in every room of the house. They had a two-room house, typically. Um, your, your typical house was the first room where you came in, which had a dirt floor when you first came in for the animals that you needed to bring in overnight for warmth for the home, but also to protect them from being stolen. And then a raised platform on which the family would sleep that was basically the living room. And then the other room was a guest room so that they could be hospitable and welcome people to their homes. They didn't have dining tables like we have with chairs that you could sit at. I almost said high chairs. Um, they didn't have high chairs for their little ones either. This always struck me about that movie Passion of the Christ that uh, Jesus is joking around about building this table and he's showing his mom the table and she has no idea what it's for. And then he's squatting and he's talking about how he'd make chairs and like it's going to be a thing in the future. It's chuckle-worthy, I guess, as a scene, a little humor to add in, but they didn't have those things. When they gathered to eat, they would recline. This is why you hear about them reclining at table in the New Testament. They would recline, they would lay on their side, they would prop their head up with one hand, and the food would be in the middle. And they would reach out, and they would grab food with the other, the free hand, and they would bring it back to their mouth and eat it. This is why they have pillows to make it a little softer to lay on your side on the floor as you dined. So the idea that they've got these fancy beds and even couches is a great reference to luxury in which they're living. Archaeology has, according to the Lutheran Study Bible, found some of these beds of ivory as they've been exploring the land of Israel. They eat lambs from the flock, calves from the midst of the stall. So choice meats... Anytime they want it, there's no concern over where their next meal's coming from. It's part of their prosperous ease, which again, very much so fits ourselves. I mean, they had couches. That was described as luxurious here. Uh, think about our own homes. Even the poorer among us, think about the luxury in which we live compared to most of the world. both historically and even today. I mean, there are so many people that live in, in much worse situations than we do. We take it for advantage. We take it for granted. They sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music. This is not to say David was wrong to make music or invent instruments. The picture that we're being given here is the idleness of it. That they are slothful. They're not working for the good of their neighbor. They're just 
merrymaking. And this is, again, quite an easy slight against us as we live the, the life that we live today. Christians in America are very much so hoodwinked. We are brought up in America, and we have not done a good job of teaching our children the worldview that comes from Scripture. And so they instead have an American worldview. They want to live the American way of life, which is one of hedonism, that is the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain and suffering. That's what our life ends up being about. And we all have our little entertainment shrines in our own homes. The idols that those are. And just to push that, I mean, as you might be wondering how that can be the case, we are here, our purpose here is not to live for ourselves. I was sharing this in a Bible class I was doing just yesterday on the book of James. But ponder it this way. If the goal of life is that we become Christian, that we know Christ and him crucified and that we be saved, if that's the goal of this life on the earth, why are we still here? Why have you not just poofed the instant you became a Christian? Because that's not the goal. That's not why God created you. I got to be careful in saying that. I'm, I'm not saying God does not save you. I'm not saying Christ did not die for you. These things are very much true. What I'm saying and pointing at, though, is Adam and Eve were perfect in the garden, and there was work for them to do. They were created to care for God's creation, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, to have dominion over it. Today, you and I still have a purpose. Yes, we are saved and we rejoice. This is good. There is a reason that we're still here. For as long as we are here, we serve. We're part of the family. We're part of the kingdom. It's our kingdom. We want to see our kingdom do well. Our kingdom is not of this world, as Christ told Pontius Pilate during his trial before him. We don't, it doesn't matter too much if America prospers. I mean, you can make an argument that you don't want to see America fall because you don't want to see the hard times that would come upon your neighbors when America falls. Those tend to have war or famine, starvation. You don't want to see that. You don't want to see people suffer that. You'd rather, you'd rather aid America in doing well. But we forget to aid God's kingdom. We forget why we're here. Jesus will give us the purpose numerous times in the New Testament. You've heard them before. Love God, love your neighbor. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, with all your might, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's our purpose. That's why we're here. And so often we don't. We don't see it. We don't do it. So to live just to be merrymaking, to live, to, you know, go to work and do your job so you can make money and you can have enough money to provide food for your family and then go home and turn on your TV and spend the rest of your night doing that, where's serving your neighbor? Because if we're honest, we don't go to work to serve our boss. 
Like you, nobody gets up in the morning saying, I really want to serve my boss today. We begrudgingly go to work. This is part of the curse back in Genesis 3. But we often do it in a selfish manner. And we don't look, we don't spend our time looking for the good works that God has put around us for us to do. We see the person that needs help, and we don't help them. They're stopped on the side of the road. We drive by thinking we're too busy. Got to get to where we're going. The neighbor in our neighborhood whose property is falling apart, we just look down on them. I have all these great plans to watch the game this weekend. I can't possibly go help them rebuild their porch or their fence or their stairs that have fallen apart or whatever danger it is to them. Got my own thing. Woe. Woe to us. So their instrumentation, the music that they're making, it's troublesome because it's not to God. It's just to please themselves. This is the sinful nature. The sinful nature focuses on me, myself, and I. Yours does the same, focusing on you, yourself, and you. It doesn't sound as good <laughs> as me, myself, and I. All right, um, verse 6, they drink wine in bowls. There could be two different things going on with that phrase. One, gluttony. So instead of using a cup, they're using a bowl. They're drinking significantly more wine. The other thing, though, uh, the Lutheran Study Bible recorded that this is the same Hebrew word for bowl as the one used to describe the vessels used in the service of God's house. Bowls that are supposed to be holy to the Lord, set apart. For example, the burning of incense or something like that. And if that's the case, then you would also have the idea here that they are breaking that holiness. They are profaning the things of God, the holy things of the Lord. The study Bible took it as a reference to the idea that this means that the even the priests are involved in this. Could be. Then anoint themselves with the finest oils. Finest oils, so you've again got luxury going on. You've got the idea here that who did you normally anoint? Well, you would anoint, anoint a prophet, a priest, or a king uh, to serve as a holy man, a, a man set aside for a specific purpose among the people. So this could be pride, anointing themselves in that way, thinking of themselves as being so much greater. Or it could be a reference to the idea, and they did in some cases do this, where when they bathed, they would use oil as well. In which case, again, it's part of the luxury statement. Another possibility here to consider is that they're covering over their sins. Seeking to make it look good. Uh, masking the scent of their death. Hiding from the idea that they will perish, that the day of disaster comes. So again, all of these things, everything through verse 6 up until that last line is a contrast to this. They are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. There is a coming doom. There is a coming destruction, and they're ignoring it. 
and they're going on in their merrymaking, their prosperous ease, and they don't care. They don't love God. They don't love their neighbor. They live for themselves. I did see, as we get the reference to Joseph here in verse 6, I saw a, a reference, a connection parallel to the brothers of Joseph in chapter 42 of Genesis. So the brothers of Joseph who did not look to Joseph uh, to care for him, but instead tried to kill him and then sold him into slavery, they weren't grieved over the ruin of their brother Joseph. They weren't. Uh, it took 22 years for them to experience grief over that. Verse 21 and 22 of Genesis 42, They said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why the distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you to not sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. So the brothers starting to repent, they don't fully until chapter 44, starting to repent because they're recognizing that the evil disaster is coming upon them now, and they believe it to be their fault for what they've done to Joseph. They didn't grieve when they should have, and now the time to grieve has come. Well, now it's really come when it's too late to grieve, as they have been living in a famine without food. So it is here that these Israelites, these Judaites, are living at ease. They don't care about their neighbor. They're taking advantage of their neighbor as they have plundered, done violence against the poor among them. They're not grieved. So, those who want to be first now, all these wealthy ones living in luxury, when they go into exile, they'll be first. They're first in life, so they will be first in death. The revelry, that is uh, the Hebrew word there, probably some kind of a feasting. The revelry of those who stretch themselves out, so the couches from verse 4, will pass away. God's judgment, there will be no more celebrations. This came to pass. Samaria destroyed 722 by Assyria. Judah destroyed Zion, destroyed 587 B.C. by Babylon. Again, this weekend, your pastor has two options for the Timothy reading, either to continue in chapter 3, which is a bit about the pastoral office, or to jump to chapter 6. I'm going to cover both of them here briefly. So let's start with 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Paul uses the, the saying is trustworthy phrase four times in his letters to Timothy. He uses it once more in his letter to Titus in chapter 3, verse 8. So it's a, a phrase he enjoys using as he writes to these young pastors that he has served with. 
If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. In my training to be a pastor, my studies, uh, this noble task phrase, uh, in Greek it's kalu ergu. And that little Greek phrase was used quite a bit. Um, We were reminded that we were desiring a kalu ergu. Seminary days are tough. Many would attest to the idea that they were never tempted more that they never had a harder time than when they were at the seminary. And the reasoning seems to be quite easy and clear, that the devil was trying to prevent them from entering the ministry. He was trying to cut down a shepherd before the shepherd got to the flock. That target painted on their backs. So pray for the seminarians. Pray for those men who are studying to become pastors. They desire a kalu ergu, which in its simplest translates to good work. It is a good work to be a pastor. This is a good thing. Um, Office of overseer. The Greek there is episkopes, which is where the English word episcopal comes from. You might be familiar with the Episcopalian church, which means governed um, by bishops. So you will find some English translations that might use the word bishop here in this spot. That would be fitting. That would make sense. This is one of those where the New Testament words that get used and what we have in the church today don't don't easily line up. The sense like you see overseer, bishop, deacon, elder, and all those things seem to refer to basically what we all lump together to be a pastor. It's not necessarily to say we're doing it wrong. We don't know precisely how they use these terms differently or if they just used as we would have like pastor, priest, reverend, minister, all these terms that essentially mean the same thing and are just used by different groups within Christ's church. So here's a list of things expected of a pastor. A deacon, a bishop, an overseer. Deacon's going to get used down in verse 8, so we'll hold that word out. Above reproach. This is the toughest one on the list, right off the, the bat. I mean... Which of us is above reproach? Which of us has never done something that would cause another man to look down on him? Which of us has never done something that brings about our own shame and disgrace? The purpose statement here, I mean, it connects down to verse 7, that he would be well thought of by outsiders so he doesn't fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. If your pastor stumbles and falls, the devil revels. We just had revelry there at the end of Amos. Uh, The feast, the devil feasts, the devil enjoys it. Because if he can tear your pastor down, he's going to harm the faith of the people in the church as well. Pastors continue to have a target on their back even after they graduate from seminary. Because as they make it to the flock, and they're shepherding the flock, if he can strike them down, it harms the flock too. So he targets pastors, bishops, priests, overseers, whatever phrase you want to use. If the outsiders think well of you, then you're less likely to be disgraced and put to shame by them. That's the trap, uh, is to not, not have that. 
for the world to, even the world to throw you down. Husband of one wife. This goes multiple ways here. It's a little interesting to consider. I mean, the Catholic Church takes the wife to be the church, so priests can't get married. That's definitely not what the scriptures teach, which is why Lutherans teach that pastors can be married, and this is a gift from God. But you have this in a couple of layers. There have been those who have thought that it means ever. So if a husband becomes a widower, he cannot marry again. A priest, not not just any man. So uh, those who serve in the office of holy ministry as pastors, bishops, so forth. If his wife dies, he's done. There have been others who take this as a reference to the idea that within Jewish culture at the time, there were certain strains of Judaism that allowed still for polygamy. More specifically, polygyny, the marrying of multiple wives. And so a pastor ought not to do that. In part, as Paul's going to get in when he wishes everybody to be single in 1 Corinthians 7, is the idea that you would have more time to serve. If you have a wife, you have less time to serve the church. If you had more than one wife, how are you going to serve the church? You're going to have too many worldly things to care for. Sober-minded and self-controlled, those often go hand in hand together in the New Testament. To be sober-minded is not a reference to drinking too much beer, that comes in verse 3, but it is the idea that your mind is not given over. When you get drunk, that's what happens. You give your mind over to be controlled by another, and we can do this with any of our sins. So be sober-minded. Don't be given over to the devil. I mean, really, when you give up control of yourself, who, who do you think's in control? Self-controlled, so that's the connection. Self-controlled is what prevents you from being drunk in your mind. Respectable, so people can look at a pastor and respect them. Hospitable, this makes the list. That pastors should be welcoming, that they should welcome people into their homes and care for them, provide for them. Able to teach so that they can teach God's word. The Great Commission, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Not a drunkard, because that's not above reproach, that's not sober-minded, that's not respectable, and when you're drunk, you can't teach. Yes, German Lutherans, there's a lot of issue with beer, even among our pastors. It's not to say they can't drink, but we can't get drunk. Really, that's true of any Christian. We're not to get drunk. We're not to give our mind over to another. Beer's not the problem. Wine's not the problem. Christ made wine in the wedding at Cana for his first miracle. Not violent, but gentle, so seeking to care for others. Not quarrelsome, so not looking for fights all the time. Not a lover of money. Most of the time in history, pastors have been woefully underpaid. Um, and so if they are looking at it for the money, 
they're not going to remain a pastor for very long. Must manage his own household well. And then he's going to get into the kids being submissive to him. But the point here is, if he doesn't know how to manage his own house, how will he care for God's church? If he can't care for his own small house, how will he care for this bigger one? It's a worthwhile point, and this happens. There are some men in the ministry, I know in the LCMS, who, who believe that if they were to lose their family, and I don't mean like an accident or something like that, but like if the wife left, they'd be done. They would resign their call. They would step out of the office. I'm one of them. I hold that belief. I know guys that don't, that don't look at that that way. The board of directors of the Council of Presidents in the LCMS doesn't hold that strongly either. Um, but I believe that's what this is teaching. If I cannot, If I cannot help my wife to remain faithful, how can I possibly manage all of the people in the house of God? If I cannot manage my own children, how can I manage all those in the house of God? Shouldn't be a recent convert so he doesn't become too puffed up in his pride in himself. So uh, a bit of a track record of his his faith that can be seen um, so that it's known to the church and it's known to himself that the gifts come from the Lord. We're going to fly through the second paragraph. It's quite similar. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Deacons here, uh, the Greek word is diakonos, which comes from the verb to serve or to minister to. So we use the word deacon, we can use the word servant. I don't know, I didn't look, but I don't know of many translations that would use the word minister here. Um, The picture is probably best to look at Acts chapter 6 that you have the apostles who have been preaching and sharing the gospel, and there's a complaint that the there's a group of widows who aren't being well enough cared for, and the apostles don't believe it appropriate for them to stop spending all their time on God's word, and so they appoint deacons to wait on the tables, to make sure that the, the ministry of the other areas of the church's work are done. Uh, Stephen is most notable among the group as the first Christian martyr in the very next chapter of Acts, chapter 7. He's a deacon. He's meant to serve. And yet, what, what do we see him doing? We also see him preaching. He's killed because he's preaching Christ and him crucified amongst the Jews. So it's hard to differentiate clearly, precisely, just how different a deacon is from an overseer. Um, You see a lot of the same things on the list. So that not drunk, not addicted to wine, uh, not greedy for dishonest gain, so the lover of money connection, um, the idea of being sober-minded, dignified, so... Oh, that's the wife, hang on. (laughs) But the husband of one wife managing their household well. So many similarities. There's a few things that are different, double-tongued. Uh, So the idea that they speak falsely sometimes, uh, this is not good. They hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. 
So they're not troubled by the fact that they cannot understand everything of God. That would lead to doubt, that would lead to harm for the whole church if a deacon falls. Let them be tested first. Sort of like the pastor not being a recent convert. Um, Let them serve as deacons if they prove blameless. The word blameless could also be translated beyond reproach. It is similar to, but not the same Greek word as was used of the overseer back in verse 2, being above reproach. So it's not necessarily the idea that they don't sin at all, um, but that the Christian community can't look at them and and disgust, like that, just how, how despicable his life is, um, that truly these men who are going to lead the community, they should be respectable. They're not perfect. They're still sinners just like the rest of us. But if they're going to lead us, may they lead us well. May they point us to Christ in all that they do. Those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The good standing for themselves is before men. Again, they're leading men. So if they're serving well, the church adores them, or at least should love their pastors or their deacons. But if they're not serving well, again, that's harmful for them and for the church. The devil revels in that. And then they would also have great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Why? Because they're being encouraged by that same church that they're leading. The sheep are encouraging them day to day. You know, I think I make this connection. So the the idea of feeding the widows from Acts 6, uh, shut-in visits. As a pastor, when I go to visit a shut-in who can't leave their home anymore, um, but they're they're hungry for the Lord's Supper, they're hungry to hear his word, and so you take it to them. Um, it was painful to leave my first call for several reasons, but one of them was the shut-ins, and, and knowing and acknowledging that they weren't going to be visited. That was tough. Somebody needed to feed them. I pray the pastor who followed me there is feeding them well, um, but it took them a while to get there, as the call process in the church often goes. So those ladies, or sometimes gentlemen, they would encourage me. They welcomed me into their homes. They were glad to see me. They, They prayed for me and with me, and they encouraged me in my faith also. Again, we have a second possible epistle reading with 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's verses 6 through 19. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. There's a lot that will preach in this little paragraph here for your pastor this weekend. It wouldn't surprise me to see this as a common, the common preached text amongst our churches. Um, but who knows what your pastor will preach on? Uh, the Lord does, and your pastor hopefully does. So, verse 6, um, Godliness with contentment is great gain. That is a very strong, small sentence. Contentment. 
to be okay with the lot that the Lord has provided you. Not longing for more, not being grumpy about what you don't have. On the other side, not even feeling guilty for what you have. Like, I I have too much. And so you start to feel shame. Be content. Contentment itself is a great gain. Not worldly stuff. Contentment is gain because you learn to not focus on the world. This is the true meaning behind Paul's writings in Philippians 4, the famed verse, right? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That one is so terribly abused. Or read the context, it's about contentment. That he knows what it means to be rich or poor, he knows what it means to be hungry or, or well-fed, and he can do all of them, he can do any of them. He knows how to be content in all circumstances. He can do those things because Christ is with him. If he's hungry, he thanks the Lord, and the Lord provides. If he's well-fed, he thanks the Lord, and the Lord provides. We brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. It's true. All of your stuff will perish. Like, look around you at the very room that you're in right now, and unless there's a living, breathing human being beside you somewhere in that room, everything around you is going to burn. Either because the Lord completely destroys this earth, or he terraforms it and and passes everything through the fire and out the other way comes the perfected new creation. We just don't know. He hasn't specified. He hasn't really thought it necessary to tell us just how he's making the new heaven and the new earth. But regardless, we do know none of this goes with us. Verse 7 says it quite cleanly, plainly. We came into this world with nothing. We'll leave this world with nothing. None of it goes with us. This is why Jesus in Luke 16, last weekend's reading, was talking about using your unrighteous stuff to care for others, to make friendships through which you can preach Christ and him crucified. If we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. That right there is the part that preaches very strongly as well. We struggle with that. Coveting is huge among us, Ninth and Tenth Commandments as we number them, or some churches it would be just the Tenth Commandment, how they number it. Um, Capitalism thrives on this. Companies must convince you that you need what they're selling, or that you want what they're selling. If they can't, they go out of business. And so marketing intentionally tries to make you discontent with what you have, and to covet something you don't so that you'll go out and buy it. I'm not saying the proper response for the Christian is to go out and burn capitalism to the ground, but as a Christian, the response is to recognize where temptation comes from so that we can learn to be content and not fall for the temptations that are brought before us. We don't have to. We don't have to give in, though we often do. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, a snare. It's not that being rich is a sin, but the desire for it, the longing for it, is a discontentment with what the Lord provides, and that itself becomes already the temptation and the snare, the trap that leads to destruction. Harmful desires that plunge people into ruin, 
and destruction. Think of those who chase after wealth today. Who spend all their time in their career trying to advance themselves, further themselves, but being in church, no time for that. Caring for their family, no time for that. And so their their life is falling apart around them while they seek after wealth. That happens still quite a bit. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. This line is mis-memorized, might be the right way to say it. Like most people have this memorized in their heads as the love of money is the root of all evil. And that's certainly not true. Um, it's not what's written here. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Loving money causes trouble. Jesus said it, God, we cannot serve two masters. We can't serve both God and money. And this is true. When we love money, it's going to cause trouble. It's going to, again, lead to coveting, theft. It's going to lead to harming our neighbor rather than helping our neighbor. I mean, you're not going to have the motivation to help prop your neighbor up. Why go serve my neighbor? I need to go make money so that I can do this thing or that thing. I can go on this big vacation. I can go on the cruise. I can I can travel the world. I can buy the fancy TV. I can buy the newest iPhone, whatever it is. It's a chasing of stuff that all perishes. None of it goes with us. Your neighbor might. That's why I said when you're looking around the room, if there were a living, breathing human being in the room with you, that's the only thing that escapes this world of death, of destruction is your fellow man whom God has created and whom Christ died for. So we're to spend our time content that the Lord has provided for us and loving our neighbor, that they too may see paradise. Verse 11, As for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So he's speaking here, turns his attention to Timothy the preacher, uh, the young pastor, and encourages him to flee from discontentment, to flee from the love of money, and instead to pursue this long list of, of godly characteristics. Righteousness, that is, um, holiness in the eyes of God. Godliness, that we would walk in the ways of God, after his characteristics, not things of the world. Faith, that we trust in him. Love, uh, both for God and for our neighbor, as the purpose for life, for why we are here, uh, unconditionally loving each other steadfastness so that we stand firm and strong in the truth that we have been given in Christ and that we resist, resist the temptation of the devil and gentleness again that showed up in the, the chapter 3 list as well that a pastor would be gentle not violent 
So a, a type of care for our neighbor. Fight the good fight of the faith. As he sometimes pictures faith as a, a race, here he pictures it as a, a battle, a fight. The devil is fighting against you. His demons fight against you. The world fights against you. Your own sinful flesh fights against you. Put on the armor of God, Ephesians 6, and fight back. Resist temptation. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Fight the good fight. Take hold of life to which you were called. Don't take hold of this world. It's a sinking ship. Don't hold on to it. Hold on to Christ and seek to preach of Christ to others that they too may hold on to the cross. Which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses may be a reference to Timothy's baptism. Uh, there would be the church around him gathering together and that they could bear witness to this. I charge you, not the first time Paul has charged him in the letter, in the presence of God who gives life to all things, so the, the giver of life, God has created all that is, and of Christ, who in his testimony before Pilate made the good confession. So as you confessed your faith in baptism, so Jesus confessed before Pilate. I charge you, keep the commandment unstained, free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord. Keep the commandment. Love God, love your neighbor. Unstained. Live for this life, not for yourself. Live this life for the Lord and for your neighbor. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For it to be stained would be for it to start to look like the world, for that's what would stain it. Free from reproach, so live a life that is respectable in the church and outside the church as well. Until Christ returns, which will happen at the proper time. It's an important little phrase there. We don't know when Christ is coming back. He's promised it would be soon, so we take him at his word. We trust it. We trust him. But we don't know when. So, we continue to live as though it may be today. But we also plan as though it might be tomorrow. And then a lot of praise to God blessed so we give him thanks he is sovereign so he reigns over all king of kings and lord of lords both superlatives so there are kings and lords in this world yes but jesus is lord of all the lords he is king of all the kings immortality alone belongs to him so life forever dwells in unapproachable light uh, we can't come near him now we have not seen him we can't see him but the day comes and when we will we'll see him face to face so to him be honor and eternal dominion, so rule over all things. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves and also a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So it's not that being rich is evil or sinful. So that's what Paul's going to get at here last, as he did just take a shot at, at wealth. Instead, the rich are to live a different life. 
They're not to live like Amos chapter 6, where they have prosperous ease and security, and they lay on their couches and their ivory beds, and they make merry with music. As they just care for themselves and please themselves. No, here's what they should do. They shouldn't be prideful, haughty. They shouldn't let their hopes dwell on their riches. This was the problem for the rich young ruler that came to Jesus, and Jesus commanded him to give up everything he owned, to sell it all, give it to the poor, and he couldn't do it because he knew where his meal came from tomorrow. He knew he was well provided for for time to come, and it was his riches that were providing it, not God. He did not trust in the Lord. He trusted in himself, and that's the trouble for those who are rich. That's one of the temptations that they have to battle against. Your provisions still come from God. And if he wants to, parable of the rich fool, he can take it all from you in a night. Just gone. So, trust not in stuff. It's uncertain. It will burn. Trust in God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So it's not that we can't have enjoyment. It's not that we can't make merry. There's a place for such things, and the Lord provides such things. But, look at verse 18. They are to do good. Love your neighbor. Rich in good works, caring for their neighbor. Generous, because their neighbor needs it. Ready to share. In doing so, they are storing up treasure for themselves. It's a good foundation for the future. So they're not building a hope that is on the things of this world, like the rich young ruler, they're building upon the hope that's already laid out for them in paradise. And not just for themselves, but as they seek to be generous, share, and do good works for their neighbors, they're also helping share Christ with their neighbors. And this is a much better thing, much better thing, than to spend money on ourselves. So they may take hold of that which is truly life, which is what Paul just encouraged Timothy to do back in verse 12. What we have as day-to-day life here, I'm not saying it's not life. There is no life, though, apart from Christ. And the day is coming when Christ returns and takes us to be with himself in paradise, where we will live forevermore, and it will be without sin. It will not be broken anymore. That's the life we're taking hold of. Christ has already given it to us. He's created faith in our hearts. And so now we hold on. Not to this world. Again, it's a sinking ship. We hold on to the cross of Christ, to him crucified and risen from the dead, to give us life forevermore. I know it makes for a longer show today, but we've got four texts to look at. So uh, bear with me. Gospel text, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Now, this is coming on the heels of Jesus telling four parables to the Pharisees and his disciples about the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, and then the dishonest manager. And one of the connections I forgot to say about the dishonest manager last week is really it's not a parable we're supposed to follow. Like parable of the lost sheep, yeah, go do that. Uh, Look for the lost one, bring him back. The dishonest manager is more like the parable of the rich fool. It's very clear, the parable of the rich fool, you don't want to follow, you don't want to do what the fool did. Um, The dishonest manager is actually meant to be the same. 
it's a parable where Jesus says we're not to be like that guy, which was actually the Pharisees. Like they, The Pharisees knew how to love men. They knew how to work among men. That's not what we're here for. We're not here to gain riches for ourselves. We're not here to care for ourselves. We're here to care for others. So use the stuff you have, unlike the Pharisees who use it to prop themselves up. Use the stuff that you have to care for others. So it's a negative parable, if that's the right way to put it. Jesus then talks about how we can't love money. You can't serve two masters. You'll hate the one while loving the other. Um, and then he says that whatever man exalts, whatever is exalted among men is an abomination before God. That not one thing from the law will become void, will pass away. And then he gives an example, which seems quite odd. Uh, if you just read through chapter 16, you're like, what is this one doing here? Verse 18, uh, he speaks against divorce. And then we jump to our chapter, or our, our text for the day at verse 19. So it, he's illustrating in this text their coming destruction. This is going to be really easy to connect back to Amos chapter 6 about the rich who were at ease and who put far away the day of disaster that was coming upon them that did not grieve the ruin of Joseph. There's your easy connection between old and, and gospel text. But I am noting we skipped over the divorce text. Um, that's a, a difficult topic to talk about, and the lectionary skips it, even though divorce is a terrible plague upon the church today. The destruction of the families all around us. Um, it doesn't seem like a verse we should skip, and it's an example of how the Pharisees are serving two masters. It's an example of how they're exalting something that God abhors. You might remember Matthew 19 that they came to Jesus asking if they could divorce their wives for any reason. It's a ex prime example of one of the things that the Pharisees and Christ, that the Pharisees and God's law are in contradiction on. All right, so we get to Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off, and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things, and Lazarus in his like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
One of the main points to see in this parable is that earthly blessings do not equal God's favor. Just because you see somebody in the world who is rich and living in luxury does not mean that God has looked favorably upon them. They may be an enemy of God. And vice versa, that the one who is poor, who has nothing, who's starving and homeless, doesn't mean God doesn't favor them. It doesn't mean that they are an enemy of God. could be quite the opposite. They could be quite faithful. So, don't judge a book by its cover. Speaking of which, is this a parable? It's quite debated, actually, of whether this is a parable or a real account. Um, it doesn't fit the typical layout of a parable. But that said, it does fit together um, with the same pattern that was used for the parable of the lost son in chapter 15. There was a, it just kind of starts that way. But he also uses a proper name. Like you think of his other parables, he's not going around naming people. So the fact that he names the poor man here, gives him the name of Lazarus, has led some to believe this is actually real. Another thing that has led to that idea for some is that he never breaks from this to teach. Oftentimes you'll see him unpack the parable, even earlier in the chapter with the dishonest manager that that Jesus, after that, teaches the disciples how to live. And there's not a section like that here. So he names the guy, he doesn't break to teach. Those lead people to believe maybe this is real. Maybe this is a historical account that the Lord is speaking, which would be interesting then because Lazarus is actually somebody that we know God did raise from the dead. Now, it's not necessarily the same Lazarus, if that's the case, but to speak of raising Lazarus from the dead to go and preach. Oh, he did raise a Lazarus from the dead, um, and most likely many of the Jews did not listen to him. When you think of Lazarus, all those who saw him alive again after his four days in the tomb, and yet when you get to the book of Acts after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see there's only 120 people that were following Christ at that point. So most of the people who saw his miracles didn't stick around. That would fit very well with the ending of this parable. So don't know for sure if it's a parable or not. Um, but we can still learn from it either way. Rich man, clothed, purple, fine linen, the signs of his wealth. Uh, purple is a, a dye that was hard to acquire because it was had to be imported from other countries around the world. Um, so typically only the richest or the noblest would have such a thing. Feasted sumptuously. So not just eating enough to get by. Um, that phrase that we hear sometimes, he lived to eat he did not eat to live. So, another sign of the great wealth. At his gate, so he's got a fancy enough home that he's got a gate. A poor man is there, covered with sores. Desired just to eat the crumbs that fell from his table. And we're not even told that he does. We're not told that he gets to. Instead, we're told the dogs, so feral. Dogs, like dogs that just roam the street. They didn't really keep pets in the ancient world, um, at least not in this kind of way. And they came and licked him. They would lick his wounds, lick his sores. So this is the poor state that he was in. And eventually he dies. And what happens? The angels carry him to Abraham's side. 
That phrase is also translated Abraham's bosom and is a reference that you may have heard of before. It is a theological term referring to, it's been different in many ages at different times, Abraham's bosom is sometimes viewed as heaven itself. Abraham's bosom sometimes viewed as the interim state, the time in between death and the last day. Um, It has led Christians to talk about in death, body and soul are separated, bodies in the ground resting. The soul goes to be in heaven with Christ, like he's caring for it, he's watching over it, protecting it, till the last day when he raises our body and reunites body and soul together again. So, we don't know much. This is the only reference to Abraham's bosom in all of Scripture, um, but a lot of doctrine has been poured out of pens ever since on that, that one topic, that one phrase. The rich man dies, buried, goes to Hades. Hades is not typically a Christian term. It's the Greek mythology phrase for the equivalent of hell. And Jesus is okay using such language. If it gets his people to picture what he wants them to picture, he'll say Gehenna, which is a valley south of Jerusalem where they practiced the the murder of children in the past. So the people viewed it like hell, hell on earth. Uh, He'll use Hades because it's in the mind of the people but they get the connection. They get what he's trying to point to. He's pointing them to hell. He calls out to Abraham. So those suffering in hell, according to this, if this is real, those suffering in hell can see those in paradise. Or at least they can see them in heaven now. This isn't necessarily paradise yet, so don't don't read too much into that, I suppose. But notice his, his plea. So he admits he's anguishing, he admits he's, he's suffering, and this is again the, the picture of hell forever, and this is what it would be like. But notice how he sees Lazarus. He still sees Lazarus as beneath himself. Even though there, Lazarus is standing beside Abraham in a glorious place while he himself is burning in the flames of hell, and he calls out that Lazarus should come and give him water to drink. I'm not even going to get into the dip in the finger. I mean, it's minimal. He just wants the slightest relief, but he still treats Lazarus as his slave. Servant to him. There's not humility in that. Not at all. Abraham rebukes him, says that basically this is what he has earned, um, that he had good in life and Lazarus bad, and now it's been reversed. This is not to say every rich man goes to hell or every poor man goes to heaven. But again, the idea that we saw in Amos 6, that living at ease is a great temptation uh, and not recognizing that the Lord's destruction comes. And so it came. It got this guy. So, Abraham then mentions a great chasm is between the two that cannot be crossed. A giant gap that is un unbreachable, unapproachable, that those who are in hell will not be able to leave it. Those who are in heaven will not leave it. It's permanent. So he begs, verse 27, and he still sees Lazarus the same way. Send him to my father's house. So now Lazarus is his his servant to do his work, his missions. I have five brothers that he may warn them. They may also not come to this place of torment. 
I mean, that part's fair. Right now, he's actually finally looking to somebody other than himself. He's trying to spare his brothers from this, but Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. They have the That's the phrase shorthand for all the Old Testament law and the prophets. Moses gave the law and the Ten Commandments, Mount Sinai. So they have the Old Testament. And as we know, the Old Testament points us to Christ. Road to Emmaus, the end of Luke's Gospel, or Paul preaching in the synagogues, going specifically to those who have the Old Testament and sharing Christ with them from it. He rejects that. says if somebody goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. If they see somebody risen from the dead, that'll change their minds. And Abraham says it won't. That if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced by the resurrection of the dead. Why? Because Moses and the prophets told us that Jesus would rise from the dead. If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, if they don't believe the word about Jesus, then they won't believe Jesus. It won't matter what miracles they see. They've rejected God. So that's our text. Again, parable or not, not easy to tell, um, but it connects very cleanly to the Old Testament reading about not living at ease in this world. But as we would connect to 1 Timothy 6 as well, being content with food and clothing and then caring for our neighbor. Yeah.